When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The year is 1980. Sydney's streets are filthy, running rampant with crime and corruption. Puberty blues is onto the cinemas, Ice House is blaring on the stereo, it's humid and dangerous, and a young man has decided to join the police force to fight crime. That man, of course, is my dad. Loose Units, the podcast, was created to tell the cases that wouldn't fit into my first book, Loose Units. But Loose Units was a series of fantastical tales that I wrote based on the real crimes my dad solved on the force back in the early 80s. So this season, dad and I are finally going to go back, back, back to the year 1980. And each week, we'll be going chapter by chapter through Loose Units, the book. And dad will tell us the story behind my version of events. It'll be thrilling, revelatory, and as always, very, very loose. Welcome to Loose Units Origins. Hello and welcome to Loose Units Origins, the weekly true crime podcast where I sit down with my dad and we talk about stuff he did. Anyway, dad, I want you to cast your mind back in time to about August 2018. Can you do that for me? No, I can't. <laughs> okay, well, let me let me let me assist you. So, it's uh it's August 2018 and uh, Loose Units the book has just come out and you and I are waiting to go onto Studio 10. So we're over at the Studio 10 studios and we've been shown through and we're waiting for an ad break to come up. We get ushered in, we get mics put on us, we've both dressed very nicely and then we get sat down at a kind of semicircle shaped table and I think um, friend of the show Michelle Laurie's there and a couple other people are there and then Joe Hildebrand is sitting at one end of this desk and halfway through I would say the second sentence that we've uttered Joe Hildebrand kind of tries to do a gotcha moment and asks you about Roger Rogerson. And the reason he does that is because there is a chapter in Loose Units and, uh, you know, they'd all read the book, which is lovely. But there is a chapter in Loose Units where you talk about Roger Rogerson. Mm. And do you remember what your response was, more or less? <clears throat> well, I remember that it was live television. Yes. And with a studio audience, by the way, there was a yeah, with an audience, thirty people, and, and those little mm. kind of tiered chairs yeah. across from us. Yep. Yeah, it was quite surreal. Yeah, um, your first your first time doing media, doing press, mm. quite nerve wracking. Mr. Hildebrand, Hildebrand, yeah. yeah, he was to my left. Mm-hmm. Now the thing about live television, yeah, in case no one knows, is that you're looking at. I think they had three three cameras. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at, I guess, the camera that's sort of got a little light on top. And um, I think they the, tell you, yeah, they, they they go, look, just so you know, try and look in the direction of the one with the with the red light, mm. the big red light on it. So you know, I'm um, 
I'm, I'm sort of pretty nervous. And because it's live, I mean, you, it's going out to a big audience. Um, but here's the thing. When people are at home watching live television, yeah. there's generally... They're getting... They might not be actually watching me talking. They can hear me talking, but they might be watching a piece of film footage or archival footage in this case, which I didn't know about. So the people at home are listening to me talking, but there's footage of Roger Rogerson. And then the guy on my left, Hildebrand, he says to me, he asked me a fairly, I thought it was a pretty ballsy question he says to me in essence you know do you have any stories about roger rogerson you know are you prepared to sit here on national television and spill your guts about something and i I was taken aback by the i would say naivety of the question you think it was naive or do you think it was just kind of very on in keeping with the kind I, of journal- I think it's I, I think it to me from yeah. my perspective Paul and I'm not yeah. a media person uh-huh. but I I wasn't overly impressed yeah with okay. the question mm. people can watch this by the way that we've put it on the Facebook page and on YouTube so you can watch the question being asked and it's quite you took it so well I mean and your response was great and you've You've told it to me a few times since then, but what did you say, uh, you know, more or less to Joe Hildebrand? Well, I didn't look at him personally. Yeah. I stayed true to script insofar as doing what I was told to do, which was look at the television because I'm looking at, no, not the television, the camera, Mm. because I'm in effect looking at the people that are viewing. So I'm looking into into their lives and they're looking at me and I... I paused, as I occasionally do, for effect. And I can't believe I said what I'm about to say, but I thought no. it was the best possible thing that I could say under the circumstances, being more than aware of Roger Rogerson's um, reputation. Yeah. And I, I just steadfastly stared at the camera and said, well, he's still alive in essence saying that the man's alive the man's got he's still connected yeah why on earth would i sort of expose myself and my family to any undue white hot retribution is what you're saying yeah, yeah. i mean look it's an interesting chapter of the book because you told me a story about something you overheard during secondary. But I'm watching your body language and you do it. I mean, first of all, I've got the video playing right now. Mm. Can I just say, it was 11.03 a.m. And you're sitting there telling stories on live TV. And it was really, I mean, it was great. It was your first media appearance. It was the day of the book launch, I think. We might have a lot of overseas listeners who really aren't that kind of au fait with who Roger Rogerson is. If you had to sum up really succinctly who Roger Rogerson... Are you sure? Is he still alive or is he... Yeah, no, he's in jail. Yeah, okay. So how Yeah, how would you how would you sum up Roger Rogerson to people who have no idea who he is? Well, they've, they've made TV shows about him, so he's a legend. Mm. Um, in his day, he was a tough but very, very, very good detective. And when we say, I mean, how does one extrapolate from that word good... 
I mean, really, what does good mean? You don't well, mean guess, morally good. You mean no. Uh, I mean good as a, in terms of results. Mm. He got the results, and he he became a very very powerful and hard man that criminals would have feared. Um, and I know that a lot of police officers um, look. This 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 is a guy that would walk into a court or or a police station or any room for that matter. Mm. And he um, he commanded a uh, a great deal of, I guess, fear and respect. He was extremely bent cop. I don't know whether he actually ever took a quid, though. You know what I mean? That what? I yeah, I'm serious. I don't know whether he was ever. Yeah, I don't know. But I know that he he murdered people. That that's bent. Yeah. But did he take dollars? I don't know. Look, you just have to put two and two together, I guess, t- to assume that. But I don't, uh, you know, I can't say that he was a corrupt policeman, but I can say he was a fucking bad policeman. And he got results through, you know, doing some really bad shit. But I don't know whether he was ever, you know, on the take. On the take. Right. Because I just don't know. I'm pretty, look, I'm, I'm fairly certain that there are people out there listening who are either full blown true crime buffs or people who read the news about this stuff every day or people involved personally who know a lot of stuff. And they're sitting there going, yeah, he was. Or mm. sitting there going, well, no, he wasn't. But either way, the reason we are talking about Roger Rogerson this week on Loose Units is because this chapter, which is chapter 32, chapter 32, you know, getting through this book, uh, it's called Back to School. So effectively what happens when you're a police officer, Dad, and you know, I, I think we all know this by now, is that you do your training, your your initial training at, the, at Redfern Police Academy, and then... You go and do your probationary period at North Sydney Police Station and you get buddied up with people like Ant-Man and Len Beater and, you know, you work with Sue and you kind of get a really good taste of what it's like to be a cop. Yeah? Mm, Yeah. And then you go back to the academy for secondary training, which Mm. is, I believe... Well, first of all, if you go back to secondary and you've been a complete washout and you've just not done a good job during your placement, what happens? Do you then just get booted off? Do you not pass? I mean... What happens? Um, look, I think the objective is for everyone to pass. Mm. I think that's that that's a given. But it's a it's a shock going from the academy in the beginning yeah. when you know nothing about policing, mm. going out on the street, working with real police, mm-hmm. going to real crimes, yeah. and really getting amongst it. And, and I guess that begins to form what type of a police officer you will be throughout your career. Sure. And that's why the mentoring, the buddy system is so important. Yeah. And and why I got to be paired up with two fucking rejects, as far as I'm concerned. Um, <laughs> as opposed to a lot of my colleagues that... Who got, got heroic super cops. Awesome. Like, yeah. I, I just, I think I really drew the short straw. Well, I got, I mean- I got, I got a, a little stick dipped in shit. And it was fucking upsetting, and it shitted me no end. Well, Excuse I mean, the shit reference, I'm, but I'm really, I'm really glad. I'm glad to hear that you've not let that form some sort of chip on your shoulder. No, um, well, I just, you know, it's just, and that, but that, that had a very good effect on my police career. Yeah, in that, of course, it, you know, it made me think to myself, well, because you're aware of other police and how they're working, because you get to yeah. see them, you get yeah. to see the arrest, you get to see them coming in, and then you get to compare them with the. Fucking, just honestly, talk about yeah. get getting the getting the the dregs. Um, <laughs> but let's face it, there were ten police 
in my class. That's mm. just my class. Like every every six to eight weeks, a new class. So there were probationary constables at North Sydney under the buddy system yeah. before and after me. So there's mm. a hell of a lot of of police in that situation. And they've only got so many police officers that they can sort of attach and give them buddies. I mean... And you, you got kind of the dregs, unfortunately. I did, but... but it's just, yeah. But you did not get someone who was flagrantly evil. So that's kind of where this chapter takes us, okay? So you are back at uh, at Redfern Police Academy mm. during secondary training. Yep. Um, I'm going to read... I'm going to set this up, okay? I'm just going to read this paragraph or two from the book just to get everyone ready for what's about to happen. Here we go. John had been back on secondary training for a few days and had just finished a slew of physical tests. He'd headed into the bathroom area to shower, shit, and shave. A room with rows of lockers and benches led into a large communal prison-style shower. John had just entered and was getting undressed when he heard voices behind some lockers. Three or four young men were speaking in hushed tones. Out of little more than idle curiosity, John hung back to eavesdrop. He'd somehow placed himself in an area between the three young men and the door, so he knew at some point he'd have to say hi. For now, though, he went with his inquisitive instincts and listened in. He recognised one of the voices, a friendly cadet named Ben, whom he'd chatted with in this very locker room twice since coming back. Ben was a probationary constable who, like John, had been out in the field for a number of months. He was in his early 20s, was bald and was built for running through walls, but he was nice enough, and his friends were grilling him on land Franchi. It was all anyone was talking about at the time, so initially John thought nothing of it. He listened as they ran through the same details he'd heard over and over already. So, in order to protect people and identities and whatnot, uh, Ben is obviously not Ben. Ben is fictional. Uh, I, you know, I described a completely fictional person so that the person who told this story that you overheard has a sheen of anonymity, uh, which I thought was smart, and so did Penguin's legal team. But obviously... Warren Land Franchi, right, mm. um, is a kind of... How would you describe Warren Land Franchi to people who don't know him? Well, he was just a gangster, mm. thug, scumbag that was going out with um, Sally Ann Huckstep, who later yeah. was found dead, drowned, murdered in a uh, Sydney Pond, you know, well-known park. Yeah. Centennial Park. Centennial that's, Park. Yeah, that's a whole... The, the story of Sally Ann Huckstep is an extraordinary story in itself, but we're not here to talk about that. But he was her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Now, I have... I mean, he was a notorious criminal... But he had very strong ties with Roger Rogerson mm-hmm. because good detectives, they work the streets and they have intelligence. And where do they get intelligence from? They get it from um, criminals that they may pay them for information or they mm-hmm. may just look after them. They may protect them. They may go light on them. When it comes to, look, there are so many f- facets and factors around bringing in a, a criminal into your sort of network. Because detectives, particularly in the squads, they need good, hard 
intelligence. And what better way would there be than to have people that are prepared, shall we say, to inform them? Mm-hmm. Or and let's 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 call them as some of them are. They're police informants. Now, to be a police informant is quite frankly, if I had to choose an occupation that I would never ever want to do, it would be to be a police informant. Right. Because you are totally. It's just what a, what a terrible terrible way to live your life. In knowing. U.S. parlance, they'd say snitch, right? You're snitch, basically, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. And you don't do it for shits and giggles. Now, how they come to agreements as to payola, as to what benefits you will receive, that's, that, that's sort of a, a mutual uh, agreement, mm-hmm. generally between two people. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So, Warren Lanfranchi, the story goes, Uh was that he was on his way to do an armed robbery in North Sydney. He was the third wheel. He was the man in the back of the car that was lying down. And the reason he'd be lying down is that good police, general duties police, street police, if they see a car... Mm -hmm. During the day, with three people on board, yep, they generally get a sense that there's a possibility robbery that they could could be robbery. Right. So in the same way that uh, throughout this book you've told stories of, yeah, um, when you're pursuing that panel van and there's three people there because what is that a is that the number you need to kind of well pull generally a job or you need a driver. Yeah. Okay. Like in all, let's let's just all think about all the great armed robbery movies. Car chases, you've always got that great... They've even done movies just called The Driver. I mean, look at... You know, you need someone who's really, really good on the road Mm. that's got exceptional driving skills. And you've got at least two people that are going to commit the robbery. Okay. Minimum two. 
So they so um, there's three people in this car, mm. and is that is that by design? That there's three people in the car so that a cop will come up and see what's going on. Is that the whole That's point right. of this? Yeah. Okay. Well, the thing is that on this particular occasion, yeah. this car that had been going across the Harbour Bridge, mm. Warren Lanfranchi, who was he was the rifleman. Yeah. So he 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 had a, a rifle with him. He may at some point have ducked down, and maybe someone saw that. Or there may have just been two dodgy-looking guys in a pretty, pretty sort of high-powered but unremarkable car. Mm. It peeled off the, uh, so it's travelling north across the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It peeled north and sort of headed up towards North Sydney Police Station, ironically. And as fate would have it on that day, yeah, a highway patrol motorcyclist pulled the car over. Right. And what I'm led to believe, Paul is that it was a routine traffic stop. So the highway patrol officer is totally unaware mm-hmm. that it's it's got two but a third person lying in waiting. One of them's armed. Yeah. They're on their way to do an armed robbery. And he approaches the car and it's a routine traffic stop. And then all of a sudden, when he comes up alongside the car... He looks down and he sees Warren Lanfranchi, that he would not have known it was Warren Lanfranchi, mm-hmm. lying down. Warren Lanfranchi sits up, points a loaded, shortened firearm. Like a sawn-off? A sawn-off. I think it was a twenty-two. Okay. And he points it in the direction of the police officer and he fires, he lets one go, but the gun misfired. So it's it's a shit fight. So the car then pisses off. Yeah. Now I don't know. Hang on, sorry. So so wait. So the gun misfired. The gun. Gun misfired. Yeah. Okay. Can and you what, imagine, a misfire imagine. is what, like what? It, in, just, it just didn't. It didn't. A round didn't go off. Okay. Okay. You know there might there might not have been one in the chamber. I don't mm-hmm. know the, the 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 technicalities, but it was a misfire. And they obviously they piss off and they bolt. Because, so okay, so what's happened is the attempted murder of a police officer. Of a police officer, it doesn't go, it doesn't work. The car leaves, but at this point, Land Franchi is sort of in the pocket of Rogerson, right? Cool. Yep. So what happens when Rogerson finds out about this? <clears throat> Again, the word on the street. This is yep. from my my information that I've gleaned over the over the years yep. was that Roger Rogerson. That was the straw that broke his back. Roger Rogerson just said, you know, this is a really dangerous guy. I mean, they, they know that they're playing with fire on the best of days. But I think Roger Rogerson had sort of, it, you know, come to the, the stage where he just felt that Warren Lanfranchi was a liability. And, um, and there would have been lots of things that I don't know about that would have gone on. But what, what the culmination of this particular story, Paul, is that on a fateful day... In Sydney, yep. In the morning, Warren Lanfranchi was, or it had been organised through Roger Rogerson to meet with Warren Lanfranchi, and it was a meeting. I don't know what the meeting was about. Um, allegedly, this is where the story gets quite interesting, and there's been a lot of stuff written about this, and they've they've done TV shows about this, of what I'm about to tell you. Yeah. But remember that. I I mean, the story goes that Warren Lanfranchi was unarmed and 
it was basically a uh, a meeting where Roger Rogerson executed Warren Lanfranchi in a public street. I think it was Chippendale. It was definitely Inner West in Sydney. And there were various people present. Yep. And, you know, there's been a lot of conjecture over the years as to, as to the intricacies of the story. But the thing, Paul, is that when I was in the change room at Redfern Police Academy during secondary training, and something I need to clarify with you and everyone else is that I didn't get to go back to, to secondary with my friends from Class 171, F Troop, because I'd gone on my honeymoon with Christine. And that delayed your And that delayed my... And, and, it, and it, was the, it was possibly, you know, in life you have some sort of sadness and some regrets. And one of the sad things for me was that I didn't get to go back with my dearly beloved friends and classmates. Yeah. Um, and I... And it kind of made me feel very disengaged, even though there's that camaraderie. You're all in uniform. But it was a very, very clinical environment. And I guess from one perspective, one may hypothesize that... You could that focus on your work a bit more? I focused or? on my, my studies and, 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 my, and my results in secondary were very, very good. I, yeah. I, I nailed it because I didn't have any real friends. And... Um, it's funny you make reference to the shaving. It's so funny, Paul, because I'm not even sure I shaved when I was in my early 20s. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> I'm the Verhoeven with the hair gene. Mm, you've you've yeah. got it all. Yep. So I'm in this sort of Dickensian, decrepit, oldie world, 1930s, kind of, kind of really just old-fashioned timber. You know, this is a, a place, an academy where... Police have been trained for the last 70, 80 years mm -hmm. and it was about to be shut down. You know, the academy was going to relocate to, to Goulburn and, and here's something that I have mentioned before which I think is kind of sweet and kind of surreal is that the Redfern Police Academy that I went to, mm -hmm. the building is still there. It's now a Taoist temple which I think is so wonderful, like a monastery or something, kind or of like a, a kind of a yeah, like a religious institution, a spiritual place, and I find that quite kind of I, I find it nice, you know, in a in a way that I can't quite describe. But yeah, okay, all right. So let's get back to that actual building. So mm. uh, you are listening in to this story about Warren Land Franchi. Tell us the next part of the story that you overheard. Mm. Well. Look, what I should have done, yeah. I should have hot-footed it out of there mm -hmm. because I was trapped. And I was thinking about this topic, Paul, before I came on air. And you know how you can be in the wrong place at the wrong time? Oh, yes. You can be in the wrong place at the right time. And you can be in the right place at the wrong time. And is that making sense? So I guess that I'd say I was in the wrong place at the right time. And I say the right time with the benefit of you and me sitting here today talking about this mm. and the fact that it became a chapter. Imagine if I hadn't have listened and heard, overheard this conversation. And I had a choice very, very early in that conversation as to whether or not I should just get out of there because I was really worried uh, because I began to realise that one of the police talking 
No. And they were talking in hushed tones, but he was basically giving an overview, a rundown of the facts of what had happened at the shooting. And I didn't want to really know about it because you know that if you know bad shit, it's just got a way of coming back. And I was really quite nervous, but I was also excited to be hearing something that was a major, major, at least Sydney, New South Wales, perhaps even national story. This was a major, major story. And the impression I get is that this young police officer in his probationary period, yeah. had actually been. So I I know that you write about it as being hearsay, but I, my gut feeling, you know you get this, if you listen to someone telling a story, you get a sense of whether it's secondhand or whether they actually were there, but they're kind of trying to tell it in a way that they weren't there. So yes. I, I, my, my impression to this very day is that he witnessed. And it's so, what a terrible, terrible thing to witness. So what, what did he witness? Well, I, I the way he told the story is that um, he either witnessed Roger Rogerson shoot Warren Lanfranchi, yeah, or he was very close to someone that witnessed Roger Rogerson because it yes, was basically but, a it was an execution. Um, but you, th- there was another part to, to this story that, and something that I don't think was made public at any point ex- until Loose Units got published. Um, and it involved the placement of Land Franchi's... Oh, oh yeah. We'll, we'll come to that. Fuck, that's heavy. Um, but anyway, whilst this story is being told, mm-hmm. when the story kind of finished, I I was kind of stuck, and I didn't want these guys to know that I'd possibly heard the story because they right. were speaking in tones that indicated that this was not a story for public information. Yep. And I had this really, really crazy idea and it happened so quickly that I actually can't even believe. And it was like a thrilling sort of being in a movie where I just had to do something and I couldn't let them know. So what I did as the conversation that they were having was coming to an end, I grabbed my towel and I actually rolled underneath <laughs> a bench and hid. Can you believe it? Why not? You know. And I just and it just seemed like the right thing to do. And and when the three of them left the uh, the change rooms, I just sort of rolled out and dusted myself off and just carried on regardless. And Paul, I never told that story to anyone ever, not even Christine, mm-hmm. until I got to tell it to you for the book. You're like James Bond. I sat on that story. Yeah, as I as I've sat on many many stories. Mm. Now, I. You went to the morgue, we. I got to go to the morgue. Yeah. As um as I did regularly. Hmm. And when I was at the morgue, the Glebe morgue, which funnily enough is in the process of being demolished. Huh. It's kind of surreal. I was in a back street just on the weekend looking at it and I was gonna stop and take photographs. I may yeah. do that this week. And it it'll it'll it's just a complete shell. And what happened was, um, and this is definitely, this is really fascinating, yeah. is that um, I was invited to see the body of Warren Lanfranchi right. at the morgue. And as everyone knows, that, because I've told everyone, that they don't have sheets over the people. They're all just naked. And they don't have toe tags. They just have, um, or they used to have when I was in the police force, a bracelet. Mm-hmm. Similar to when a baby's born, that type of plastic bra- bla- bracelet. But the opposite. Yeah. 
And I was directed into a particular room and there lying in front of me on a on a sort of a stainless steel gurney mm-hmm. was the naked body of Warren Lanfranchi. He was lying there with from memory three bullet holes. He had one in his in the front of his head, yep. he had one in the side of his head and one in his chest. Neat, perfectly concentric circular holes. No sign of exit wounds. Um, and he was lying there. One of the most, you know, a really, really fucking scary crim. But, and here's, 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 the, uh, here's the rub on this particular story. Excuse the pun. Someone, and it definitely 100% would not have been anyone at the morgue because they would have zero reason to do what I'm about to describe. Yeah. Um, undeniably a detective um, on the balance of probabilities and if we were to take that down sort of drill a little bit deeper I would in my heart of heart feeling believe it was Roger Rogerson that got Warren Lanfranchi's dead hand which would have had rigor mortis and opened up the fingers of the hand and placed them around his penis and then closed it as though he was masturbating in death, and I saw that with my eyes. And so I, so you, just... yeah. So basically, you saw the um, you saw a stiff with a stiffy, basically. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so rigor mortis would set in, and then the hand would basically be fused there, wouldn't it? Mm. And someone so had done he... that. And it was just, I just, I just stood there, and I just, and and the reason I was shown the body is that the staff member felt that i would find that kind of funny well right. i didn't find it funny at all you're in your early 20s and you're looking at dead bodies that have been basically posed do you think this was retribution for the attempt of a so i'm just reading from wikipedia here rogerson was responsible for the 1981 shooting death of warren land franchi during the inquest the coroner found rogerson was acting in the line of duty but a jury declined to find he had acted in self-defense however it was alleged by land franchi's partner sally ann huckstep and later by nettie smith that Rogerson murdered Lanfranchi as retribution for robbing another heroin dealer who was under police protection and for firing a gun at a police officer. Okay, so yeah. that's the that second part is what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think the hand around the codger was basically a, you know, a it was fuck a fuck you, you. for messing with the police? Hundred okay. percent, no okay. doubt about it. I'd love to know. Look, Roger Rogerson is is still alive. He's yeah. in jail for the murder of Jamie Gow, a heroin dealer, and and a, wasn't hang on, wasn't there a student involved in that? No, that is the student. Oh, okay, that's, okay. That's, that's the young Chinese student, and there were and there was there also was... so yeah. So it also says here, uh, Rogerson was dismissed from the police force April eighty uh, six. He was subsequently convicted of perverting the course of justice in relation to one hundred and ten thousand dollars deposited by him in bank accounts under a false name, uh, and then he spent nine months in jail before being released on bail. Uh, and this is after all the kind of Sally Ann Huckstep murder stuff. Um, he killed someone called Drury, Michael Drury. Mm. Um, oh, he didn't die though. Didn't he? He got sh- uh, So fellow officer Michael Drury has alleged that Rogerson was involved in his attempted murder. Uh, Drury claims he refused to accept a bribe Roger Rogerson offered in exchange for evidence tampering in a heroin trafficking deal. This guy sounds fucking bent. I don't mm. know why this Heavy. is equivocal. Mm. Jesus Christ. No, okay, so... 
super scary. And to tie it back, this is the guy that is still alive. So when we do our first press appearance on Australian live morning television, this is a fucking morning show. This is light entertainment. Um, uh, Joe Hildebrand basically tries to gotcha over it. And you, you parried this beautifully. But basically what we're trying to say here is that you in your early 20s have overheard a story, which in the book, yeah, I tried to make it sound like it was heard from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend. But just to clarify, when you told me this story, you said to me, this guy, I'm pretty sure was there. Mm, you said yep. there were too many details for it to have been secondhand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I was heavy, super heavy. Yeah. And, I, and I was mature enough and aware enough and and sort of keyed in enough to know that this was fucking heavy. And I just thought if these guys come around the corner and see me sitting there... I, I, you just don't know. You don't know yeah. how far these things reach. And I needed to look after number one. And mm. then to top it all off, um, as if that's not enough in this chapter, Paul, uh, I was doing my final exams during secondary training in this yeah. bloody gargantuan. They used to have these dividers that could open up the rooms to create mm-hmm. this monster room with like 200 police. We're all sitting there and it was a weekday afternoon and Christine had been transferred to recruiting uh, where she was, you know, working away Monday to Friday, nine to five. Yep. We'd, we'd come back from Fiji probably six to eight weeks prior and hence me missing out on my opportunity to go back with class 171. I, in effect, went back with class 172 or 173, God knows. And the vibe was just totally different. It was just just weird. And I, you know, I didn't really kind of enjoy myself that much. But as I said, I put my head down. I'm right in the middle of this major examination. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, a very senior officer came into the classroom, uh, found out where I was sitting, came up to me, whispered something in my ear, words to the effect, um, there's a... There's a constable from police recruiting mm-hmm. needs to talk to you urgently. It must have been bloody urgent because you don't get to do that in the middle of a final exam. And I went out into the corridor and there was a phone there and they'd patched it through from recruiting. It would have been an internal police line. Yeah. And it was Christine on the... Uh, on the blower and she said to me two words bearing in mind that i'm in the middle of a a major exam Mm -hmm. and she just said uh i'm pregnant crazy and uh i i was kind of wow and that's me isn't it and that's you so that's technically my first appearance in the book (laughs) isn't that surreal paul she she I don't know whether she was, whether she actually knew I was in the middle of my final exams, which is mm. super, super serious. Um, but that that news kind of, but it made me feel good. I was excited, and I think I went went back into that exam with a with a spring in my step, feeling good, very positive. Yeah, and I kicked ass in the results, and and you know that's that's an event that occurred. Um, as to you know how how old you are now, and you just take it back to that that point, and it can be traced back. So it's fascinating, and 
kind of it's it's you, you, I don't think he can write this stuff, Paul. This is I mean, he can write about it. Well, I mean, I don't uh, think he'd just sit. I don't think he'd get a whole lot of writers sitting in a room just making this shit up. No, I mean. One of the fun things about writing these books is I get to base them on things that actually happened. And the things that actually happened were fucking nuts. Crazy go nuts, to quote dear, dear Strong Bad. Anyway, Dad, these are great stories. I, I really enjoyed this episode. I think next week's going to be a real cracker. But later this week, we're going to do a loose ends. As usual, it's going to be really, really fun. Um, Booktopia has Electric Blue on sale right now. Right now, you can get your copy of Electric Blue cheap so head across to booktopia.com and grab electric blue while it's on sale i know a lot of you've been waiting for it to go on sale and it's finally gone on sale so grab it up um i think that's all the time we have for this week's episode though hopefully we don't catch any of that scalding white hot rogerson retribution but it's been an exciting episode dad thank you so much for joining us again this week and we'll see you later this week for more loose units bye everyone bye Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.